you know, as we were worshiping, especially the last couple songs, I was thinking, what would that crucifixion scene have been like if everybody got it? Can you imagine the scene if the disciples really understood what was taking place? What would it have been like if the followers of Jesus had known not only what he was doing, but why he was doing it? In my mind, I can't help but think it would have been totally, totally different. Oh, it would have been painful to watch, anticipating and knowing the loss of your your rabbi, your teacher, this man you've given up everything for to follow. But if you understood better what he had been trying to teach and trying to reveal to the people throughout much of his ministry, sometimes he was very, very subtle in his teaching. Sometimes he was just point blank blunt. When he was subtle so often, nobody understood, not even his disciples. When he got blunt, the religious people got really angry. Peter even decided it was time to rebuke Jesus because he didn't know what he was talking about. And we're going to be looking at that particular section of the text, the scripture this morning. Last week, Casey started this new series on broken, preparing for Easter. And really kind of the emphasis there was the brokenness of Christ, you know, his death, his burial, his resurrection, all he endured. And it it is an amazing thing to think about. We can't even truly comprehend it. No matter how intense we try to describe it, the adjectives we might use or the horror of it, we fall short. So he did sacrifice. But I think today I want to emphasize a little bit more how does it prepare us for Easter when we think about it? Is there a brokenness in us because of what Jesus did? Why he had to do it and who he did it for? It's so easy to just get wrapped up in the excitement of a holiday. Easter there seems to be a little bit more focus in the church because of the significance of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. But it's still easy for it to just become an event that took place somewhere in the past. And what does it really do to me? How does it impact me? I'm sure all of us have experienced at different times in our lives when we've either said something or done something to or for someone else, and they've totally misunderstood and missed it. If you've been married, you've probably done that more than once. And so it's easy for us looking back on the cross to get a little bit skeptical or sometimes even a little critical of the disciples and thinking, God, guys, how did you miss this? I mean, Jesus was with you for three years, 24-7, pretty much, except when he escaped to pray. And they missed it. But they were still looking forward towards the cross. And sometimes I think even though they were looking forward and didn't and couldn't see as clearly as we should, we sometimes don't let it impact us the way that it should. The power that it has when we look at it. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 8 in just a minute. And we're going to be looking at an event when Jesus got just blunt with his disciples He told them who he was, what his mission was, and what it was going to take. 
And up till this point, in all the subtleties of his teaching, and sometimes he even wasn't too subtle and they still missed it, all the demonstrations of his power and his authority as God and human, you'd hear things like, no man could do these things, and yet they didn't really comprehend that this truly was God in the flesh, the Son of God. And like I said, when he did speak clearly, it was to the religious leaders. It brought about the collision that Jesus knew was inevitable. He knew it was coming. He understood that there was a, he was on a collision course what were really God's representatives to the Jewish people at that time. Think about that. He knew. These were God's people. He had set up the system of sacrifice and worship. He had set up the priesthood. These were to be his representatives on earth. And Jesus knew we are on a collision course because they were not going to be able to receive and accept the change and the differences he was bringing. And I think when I look at this, this last couple of weeks especially, when we, we, we say or do or someone that says or does something that we, we don't understand, or usually we immediately jump to a conclusion. You know, just a, a simple thing would be, you know, I, I might look at something, I might tell my boys, guys, why don't you go do this for me? And then I watch what they're doing and I go, what in the world is wrong with those guys? Why would they do it that way? That is so counterproductive. I'm trying to avoid using the word stupid. Now, if I would take the time, the thing I don't understand is their why. Why? Somebody will come to you and say, that is, why are you doing that? That's the craziest way. It's going to be way more work, blah, 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 blah. When, what, would make, what would the difference be in my understanding if I would start that conversation with, it's interesting. I didn't think of it that way. Why are you doing it that way? What are you hoping to accomplish? And I think this why and what thing is what the disciples were really missing. The why. When Peter is going to rebuke Jesus, I mean, what Jesus was telling him was not good news to the natural mind. The spirit man was not understanding. Let's read Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 33. Jesus is going to be teaching them. And he starts this way. He says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and then he must be killed. And after three days, he's going to rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And then Peter took him aside And I choose to believe he was probably almost acting like the spokesperson for the whole group. Poor Peter, we beat him up. But if I'd have been one of the other 11, I'd have probably been saying, yeah, Peter, come on, straighten this guy out. Peter begins to rebuke him. That word is a strong word. In the original language, that's the same word when Jesus used to rebuke the demons and cast them out of people. So Peter's coming at the Lord pretty hard here. And he's rebuking him, and he says, and then Jesus says, Jesus turned to him, looked at his disciples, 
He was going to make sure they all understood. And then he rebuked Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. I wonder how that impacted Peter at that moment. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And no matter how hard I could be on Peter, I think I would have had in mind the things of men too. Because they didn't understand clearly the why, especially the why. Jesus is laying out the what. If you notice in that scripture, there's two words that might not seem significant until you go back and reread it. But he says, the Son of Man must, must suffer. Not might, should, could, must, has to suffer. And then it goes a little further. It says, and he must be killed. Must be killed. And we'll come back to that in just a few moments. First, I want to kind of take a little bit of a rabbit trail with a couple of points from this section of Scripture. That phrase, Son of Man, it's an interesting title. And if you look in the New Testament, it looks like it was used about 82, 83 times, depending on your translation. And every time, except the one I can find, it was used by only one person, Jesus himself. He is the only one, no other friends, no other foes. The only other time I see it used is in Acts chapter 7 by Stephen. And most of us probably know the story. Stephen has been teaching and confronting the religious people of the day, and he is being stoned to death for standing up and suffering for Christ. And he says, look, who's around him? He's speaking to these religious leaders primarily who are stoning him. Look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, the Son of Man. At this, they covered their ears. Picture that. All these religious people in their fancy clothes, their fancy gowns, their cute hats, they're all kind of doing type thing. Why? They knew what that Son of Man title meant exactly. And they knew what Jesus is declaring. So they're covering their ears, acting like they're in agony. And there's another excuse that we got to stone this guy. This guy, this guy has to die. And Stephen uses that title. And this is the only other time I see that's used a couple of times in reference to in Revelation. But otherwise, it's Jesus himself using that phrase. In the Old Testament, we see it used a number of different ways. In the Psalms, it's used many, many times, but it's almost always, and I would say always, but I've learned never to use that word, to other men. I might say, you're the son of man. You're the son of man. They're the son of man. Just made reference to men in general. Now, in Ezekiel, it's used a number of times. The prophet Ezekiel, it's used about 90 times, but that was the phrase that Jesus or God used in talking to the prophet, son of man. And neither one of those would get Jesus in too much trouble if that's all that it meant. But then there's a, an example in the book of Daniel that makes it crystal clear. And I am sure this would be any Jewish leader for absolute certain when they heard this phrase, son of man, coming out of Jesus' mouth would probably immediately connect to Daniel chapter 7. 
And I'm pretty sure that most of the Jewish people in general, because of the way they trained up and brought up their kids and they studied the prophets, etc., this son of man thing would resonate them, with them from the book of Daniel. In Daniel 7.13, it says, and in my vision, now Daniel had had this traumatic vision and God had revealed some of what the vision meant to him. And as he goes on, he says this in verses 13 and 14, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like the son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days, God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All peoples, all nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Is there any doubt who the Son of Man is in the vision of Daniel? It is the Messiah. And that's why it drove the religious leaders so crazy when he referred to himself as the Son of Man. So why was Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man all the time? What was the point he was trying to make? So much of his teaching was very subtle. We keep hearing the phrase in the New Testament, you know, those, with, those with ears to hear and eyes to see will get this. Those with ears to hear and eyes will see. So you could get it, you could understand it, even his subtle teaching. But it's more often than not, it was missed. So why was he doing this? I believe he was stressing two things at the same time. I believe he was, first of all, stressing his humanity. I don't think you can look past that title and the way it's used in a lot of the Old Testament especially, that the Son of Man. I think he was declaring, yes, I am man, because he was all man just as he was all God. And it was as all man he came and lived a sinless life as a demonstration for us. In Hebrews, it talks about us in, in, in Hebrews 4, so we can identify better with Jesus. It says in verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted every way, just as we have been tempted. Yet he was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus, I believe, was making this point. I'm one of you. I'm tempted just like all of you. He had to be for the significance of the crucifixion, him being the sinless lamb of God. He had to be all man. But I believe at the same time, he was also stressing his divinity. He was making clear, finally, very clear, Time for being subtle was over. The timing of God was at hand to make all of these declarations come clear that, yes, I truly am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. I am the Deliverer. I am the Redeemer. All of those things he's now coming forth with. So it could have been man, just born a man, but it wouldn't have got much of a reaction. No problem with that. But in the text that we're reading today, he was crystal clear. And really what he was actually proclaiming, that he is going to be the key figure in God's plan of redemption of all mankind. He was going to be the deliverer of all mankind. Not just the Jewish people, but all humanity. He was making this public declaration. 
And as I said earlier, he was always tr- doing this in ways that, you know, if you were, well, it, like the Bible says, if your ears are open and your eyes are open, you're hearing and you're seeing what's taking place. I mean, we'd hear him say things, gee, no one can do what he does. No man can do those things. You'd have to be a God to do those things. And yet, now that doesn't work. He didn't have eyes to see. He would hear these relatively clear, clear teachings when he wasn't always in parables or using metaphors. But they didn't have ears to ear. They missed it. So on that day of the crucifixion, from the disciples' point of view, it's all over with. It was for nothing. Why was he so subtle so much of the time? Well, I think we see that in Scripture clearly, that if the people had understood that he was the Messiah, they still didn't understand who he was as the Messiah and what type of Messiah he would be. I think he knew they would, that people would understand just enough to make him king or make him the general of their army or something, but they would miss the point and purpose for his coming to earth at all. But when the time was right, and it's amazing to me, the time was right in Matthew 26. Why would you choose when your life was on trial to say, yeah, okay, guys, you've asked me this question. Now I'm going to give you an answer. He's before the high priest, and the high priest stood up and says to Jesus, Matthew 26, 62, are you not going to answer us? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under the oath by the living God, tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Why now, when his very life was at risk? The disciples, I'm sure, would not have understood. We, looking back, hopefully do. But they didn't understand that this had to happen this way. This must happen. Going back to our text in Mark 8, 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the priests, the chief priests, the elders, teachers, and then he must be killed. And after three days, he must rise again. Must. Why must he? I believe there's at least two, I'm going to just pick two, great things, great needs, great reasons that make it a must. The first one is our sin. When you think of the horrors of the crucifixion, we can easily forget and look at that and not realize I put him there. And I remember that I've seen the Passion of Christ a number of times and geez, it just breaks your heart. But I, sometimes it's not breaking me heart, my heart because I'm thinking I put him there. It's breaking me heart because it's sad and I'm looking at his mother standing at the foot of the cross in this movie. But the reality is it should break our hearts to understand that our need was so great. And when I say break our hearts to that place of acknowledging who we are as sinners, 
leading us to repentance and realizing we need a savior. That's what should break our hearts when we think of that scene of the crucifixion. Man's sin, Romans 8, Romans 3, 23, 623, make it crystal clear why it was a must. All men have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. It's a must. And the wages of sin is death. It's a must. The penalty had to be paid. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. It's a must. So the first reason or need that makes it a must is is our sin, but the second one is his great love. The love that he has for us. You can just go to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will never die. Ever. But will have eternal life. He loved us so much. The must, I believe the reasons behind that word must were man's sin and the father's love. It had to happen this way. Jesus goes on in other places and he teaches out, teaches very clearly again to us looking back to the cross of his purpose, the mission, why he came in Matthew 20 verse 28, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's declaring a little subtly that the son of man came to redeem. He came as a ransom for all who will receive him. Luke 10, 19, 10, for the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. That was us. That's all who have not accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. The disciples are giving, being given later on as we go through this, that's the why, to help them understand. But it's after the fact. So I want to go back to Peter and his response. Obviously, he was missing something. He didn't get it. And I would say not only Peter, the disciples didn't get it. Why would he jump to this conclusion? Why would he, what possibly could have made him think he could rebuke Jesus? Can you get, think of any good reason that Peter would have thought after all this time with him, I, I, I can rebuke him? Like, I mean, like he's been wrong before? It just hasn't happened. I'm going to offer this up as a possibility. Most of you will remember this. It's in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 18. But Jesus has been teaching. There had been a confrontation with the the, uh, religious leaders again. They went across and were meeting in another place. And the disciples realized they'd forgot bread. And they were talking about forgetting the bread. And then Jesus started teaching about the bread. And the disciples are scratching their head. Do you think he's teaching this because we forgot to bring the bread? I mean, these guys are just like me. And then finally he gets to this place and he says, who do the people say I am? And they throw out these different things. They replied, some say you're John the Baptist, man. Some say you're Elijah, man. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the other prophets, all men. Then he goes, what about you? What about you? Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of God, the living God. 
And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for for this was not revealed to you by man, but my Father in heaven. Now, if it were different circumstances, I'd say, how cool is that? If I'm Peter, I'm going, I heard God. God spoke to me. Jesus himself literally told me that I heard from God. I hear from God. How cool is that? So in Peter's mind, what he is just hearing Jesus saying about must having to suffer makes no sense. The Lord spoke to me, you're the Christ, you're Messiah. This makes no sense. The Messiah represents strength and power and authority, success, not failure. You're Jesus, the Messiah, according to what the Father told me, and now you're going to die? You said, follow me, and we left everything and followed you for nothing? Failure? It would be hard enough to hear the man you love, your teacher, the one, your rabbi you've been following, to realize that if this is true, I'm going to lose him. But then to realize all for nothing. What a waste. It couldn't compute. Peter couldn't understand. And after he tries to rebuke Jesus, Jesus rebukes Satan. Get behind me, Satan. We need to understand, like Peter, a few things about Jesus' death. First of all, we need to always remember it was voluntary. He went out of total obedience. I was thinking this morning as we were singing, as I was going and taking my thoughts a little further, was with Jesus. What must have it been like in the human side of Jesus, that human man, Jesus, to know that, okay, my ministry went public and I've got this long and I'm going to die on a cross. There would have to be some sort of mental anguish since he was tempted like all of us were tempted that he just never sent. Jesus' suffering and death was a voluntary choice. It was an act of, of his free will, of his humanity, and of his divinity. The only thing that limited his free will was his obedience to the Father. The free will. Jesus' death was the only way that we could experience freedom. Freedom from sin. Freedom from the bondage. It was the only way. As we prepare for Easter, are we considering these kinds of thoughts? Because of his obedience to God, Jesus became this despised person. Tortured, beaten, nailed to a cross, buried in a tomb. Praise God, he was raised from the dead. Because in the verses said, these things must happen and then must on the third day be from raised from the dead. And that's where we celebrate the victory of Easter. Good Friday didn't last. Thank God, huh? It didn't last. Easter came. 
He had to go and suffer and die for us. And that's my challenge for us, even as we get excited about all the things that take place with Easter, the families, the fellowship, the food, everything that we do in celebrating Easter. To remember, he did it for us. He had to do it for us. That should cause us to be more properly prepared for Easter. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I, we, I, can't thank you enough for what you did for us. Father, we think of the love that you demonstrated to us in giving up your son, knowing that the wrath that you had towards humanity because of sin was going to be put on your son. And he would do it voluntarily. We thank you, God. We thank you for his willingness. I pray, God, by your Holy Spirit, who now lives in us, even as we look back towards the cross, we have greater understanding. But, Lord, I pray you would increase our understanding, increase our, our, the relevancy of all that took place to each and every one of us individually. I thank you, Lord, that my sins were nailed to that cross. And I thank you, Lord, on that third day, when Jesus rose from the dead, the victory was completely won. The sacrifice was sufficient and Jesus was raised an example for each of us to know that we too, one day will all be raised to spend eternity in your presence. So Lord, I pray that you will help us as we go our separate ways. Watch over us, bless us, keep us safe. But keep us alert to the opportunities we might have in this Easter season where more and more people are open and receptive. The world is looking for hope. The world is looking for love. The world is looking for truth. And you have given us the task of being your ambassadors to represent all of those things. Lord, we ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.